0: Reading for today is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning again, Redemption Arcadia. My name is Josh Prather. Uh, I'm a pastor at Redemption Church and one of the elders here, and it's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you today. Let me just uh, kind of walk through the outline that I'm going to go through, and then uh, we can we can jump into it. So we're going to start with uh, the biblical story. I think it's important to kind of remember the context of where we're coming from, the story of history that. Leads up to our text, and then we'll get into uh, the context for the book of Ephesians. Once again, we've been in this letter for quite a bu- quite a while, so I think it's important for us to kind of rehash: Okay, where have we come from? Where are we at now? And then uh, Ephesians five one through two, which was added there. Cody talked about last week a little bit, but there's a few things that are really important that I want to talk through that are going to connect to our text. And then we'll get into our text um, three through four, and then from that. We're going to go to the gospel because it's not important. I mean, it's not um, sufficient for me just to go through the text, talk about some biblical implications, applications for you without rooting it in Jesus. So we'll get to the gospel. From that, I'll talk through our mission as God's people. As Caitlin just said, we're gospel centered and outward focused. So we're always sent on mission as God's people. And then I'll end our time with, okay, this mission's really hard. Life's not great all the time. So uh, what do we have to hope for? As God's people, and that's how we'll end it. Okay, so the big idea in our text today is going to be to imitate Jesus. We must be content with Jesus and what he has given us, and our contentment will be seen in our thankfulness. So the reason I'm really pulling out contentment, because I believe sexual morality, the covetedness, um, all these different aspects, the underlying all of them is lack of contentment, which is so prominent and our culture. So that's going to kind of be the the major thing. So let me pray, then we'll jump into the biblical story to start. God, we give you your word, and uh, I give you my words and my mouth that you would use them according to your will. God, I thank you for this time where we can come together. God, we only have an hour and 15 minutes to sink back up and remember that Jesus is our reason for living. He's why we exist. God, he saved us. He owns us. We belong to him, and our lives God are in submission to him. So may we fall in love with him afresh this Sunday morning in his name. Amen. So starting with the biblical story. God has created us from the beginning to imitate him to the world. So what Paul is talking about in our text is nothing new. That's how we were actually designed. He created man in his image. He placed man in a beautiful garden in relationship with one another as you see with Adam and Eve, but also in relationship with him. And he called them to be content with what they had, to be satisfied with what he had given them. There's only one tree in the whole garden that God says, you can't eat from this tree, but the rest of the world is literally your playground. You can enjoy it. You can enjoy one another. Um, And this contentment in Genesis 1 and 2 is derived first and foremost, this is going to be really important as well, from their connection to God. So they are rooted and grounded in their identity as God's people. They're created in his image, first and foremost. They belong to him, and that roots them. He is where they find their satisfaction. The man and the woman are satisfied with one another and satisfied with what God has provided and satisfied, first and foremost, with God himself. That's where their satisfaction comes from. However, sin, as we learn in Genesis 4-7, through is always crouching at the door, and Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking humans to devour. So Satan comes at Adam and Eve, presents them with a better opportunity, and presents them with the opportunity to actually be representations of themselves to the world. To no longer be God's image bearers, but cut God out of the equation and just represent yourself to the world. Turn your heart inward and think about yourself first and foremost, and let that reflect to the whole world. They don't need to be content because they, uh, they can only be centered on themselves. This is the vision that God gives, so what do they do? They take the fruit, they take it, they eat it, and the whole creation is now polluted with sin. And because of this moment, we now live lives that reflect our own broken images to the world and not God's image. Self-actualization now is our center point. Men and women are no longer content with God. They're no longer content with their sexual partner. Sex is going to be a major theme in our topic today because sexual morality is in the passage. No longer content with their sexual partner or lack of sexual partner. And they're certainly not content with what God has given them post-Genesis 3. The inability to be content has made it impossible to really imitate God and reflect his beauty to the world. So from this moment... We actually live more like Al Pacino's character, Tony Montana, in Scarface than we do as Image Bearers. Anybody familiar with that film? I'm not recommending you watch it. This isn't a pastoral recommendation. It's intense, you know. But uh, there's this line at the beginning of the film, before Tony Montana actually becomes the Tony Montana that a lot of us are familiar with, the drug lord that has millions of dollars. Um, He's in the car with his friend. They're driving down the road, and he looks to his friend. And he says, I want what's coming to me. And his friend says, well, what's coming to you? And he says, the whole world and everything in it. That's our hearts. Never content. Just like Tony Montana. He's not unique. That's all of us. And we're actually in a culture now that breeds discontentment. But God, in his kindness, decides to restore humans through a man named Abraham. Abraham wasn't special, no more special than any one of us. But He was content with God, or as long as he was content with God and content with what God had given him, he could actually reflect God's image to the world and be a blessing, as Abraham was called in Genesis 12, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And it's really important that we remember that it's not Abraham that was special, that it's not Paul that was special, it's not us that's special, it's us rooting ourselves in Jesus, in God, so that he can reflect his beauty to the world. Abraham turns into a great nation that turns into Israel, but sadly, if we know the story, they don't live up to their calling, and they fail in their calling. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes as God in the flesh and faithfully imitates God to the world. He submits to his Father. He fulfills the calling. He is content with his Heavenly Father, thankful for the life that God chose for him, and faithful unto death by faith in jesus we become god's children once again and we have the privilege of now reflecting god's beauty to the world and this is our call today to reflect jesus to the world to live with contentment in our relationships with him and seek to be thankful in all things but we recognize if you've been a christian for a while you recognize this call of contentment this call of thankfulness is not easy being grateful for your spouse being grateful for what God has given you, living a life of gratitude. It's not easy because Satan is still active, sin is still real, and evil systems now govern our reality as humans. So, shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus to try to help them in this hard journey of following Jesus and trying to reflect God's beauty and God's image to the world, which leads us to our context. Context for Ephesians, starting in chapter 1. In verse 3, it says, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, reminding us once again, as I've already said, that Jesus is God's Son, faithfully reflecting His beauty to the world. He continues in chapter 1 that we no longer need to covet what our neighbors have. In Christ, we are blessed beyond what we could comprehend or imagine, and God has chosen us, He's chosen us as a people and committed to us so that we can faithfully live our whole lives in submission to him and reflect his beauty as a people to the world. In chapter 2, he reminds us that we weren't always good. It starts off with, remember who you once were before Jesus, which is always important to remind ourselves who we were before Christ. But by God's grace, you're saved, and you can walk according to the call God's given you. In chapter 3, Paul unlocks this mystery that God has given him that No longer are we single and married, are we slave and free, are we black and white, but God has actually unified a people from all tribes tongues together as one family, and this unity as a people actually reflects God's beauty to the world, because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, so we come together with all these different people in one room, and we reflect this to the world. This is part of reflecting God's beauty in his image. In chapter 4, continues with reflecting this oneness that God has for us. And then finally, in chapter 5, it moves towards practicalities. At the beginning of the book of Ephesians, and that's why I recap it, it's so important, because what Paul does in the first few chapters is remind us of this cosmic work that has been done in Christ, that Christ is reconciling and unifying all things. All things are coming together, and he has set aside a people to actually be a representation of that oneness and reconciliation to the world. And then in chapter 5, when he gets there, he gets just to to practical things. But if we forget that our call is not individual, but a call of a people, then I think we miss the point. Because there's no other book like Ephesians that focuses so much on the church. And I extend my arms and not say the church, because that's what we want to do. We want to say the church and dice this all up as if we're individuals, and not look at ourselves as the church, a family that united as one reflects God's beauty to the entire world, and that's our call. So the context, a little more context, Ephesians five one through two, I think is going to be important before we get to uh, get to our text. So uh, verses one through two, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a few things to draw out before we get to our text. The first is that we must imitate Jesus. If Jesus faithfully imitated the Father, then we now need to look to Jesus and follow him. This is why God tells us to have faith like a child, because if you see children, they don't analyze and ask a lot of questions before they start to imitate do they they just see someone that they respect a parent I'll use as as an example and they start to imitate about a week ago my daughter was on the floor she's three years old and I see her with her finger up her nose and she's not really picking her nose it's just like a finger up a nose and I run over there I'm like baby what are you doing like are you picking oh I pick my nose (laughs) a lot yeah and she sees me do it. So what does, she, does she ask me why I pick my nose? Do we have a conversation? No, we don't. She starts to do it. She just reflects it. She sees it and says, okay, I guess what you do. And she just, we just went up there, you know. But a more positive example of, of reflection is also now when I gather, she's been doing this for the last year, my wife and I will gather around to pray. And right as I'm about to start praying, she immediately goes, and clasp her hands like this. Um, because that's exactly what my wife does. She says, okay, baby, we're going to pray. And we get down. My wife does this. And it's so sweet. She's done it for like last year. Now, we didn't tell her to do that. That wasn't something we like instructed her that she had to do. And I think you can pray without clasping your hands, you know. But what is she doing? She's just imitating Rachel. She's imitating my wife. That's what she saw. And that's what she does. So we need to look to Jesus just like a child. And we need to imitate him. We need to learn, as Paul Miller says, his cadences. For how he actually lives his life and we need to follow accordingly the second thing and this is harder is that imitating the love of jesus will lead to sacrifice i think paul makes that clear in verses one through two and you notice the temple imagery that paul is drawing from the old testament that jesus is a fragrant offering he's a sacrifice and you see this with god's people in the old testament and paul does a terrific job of taking something absolutely horrific and putting a beautiful spin, well not a spin because that makes it sound like it's not what it actually is. But taking something horrific and showing the beauty that's actually inside of it. And I don't want to rehash the whole crucifixion story here. Um, but Jesus' death on the cross was not something I would look at as something, as a fragrant offering. I look at a fragrant offering as a candle. I, <laughs> I look at a fragrant offering as my wife's essential oil diffuser. You know, that's something that's producing a fragrant offering for me. But when I think about the marred, bloody, naked body of Jesus on the cross, and this is what Paul, before Paul launches into our text, this is the background that he gives. You need to walk according to this sacrificial love, fragrant offering, sacrifice pleasing to God, and this is the sacrifice. It says in Isaiah 53, 14, speaking of Jesus, um, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. And this is what it means to imitate the love of God. This is what it means to follow Jesus. So it reminds us, now transitioning our text, that fleeing from sexual immorality, trying to be pure, seeking to be content, and not coveting what our neighbors have... Always being rooted to where we find our satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone is not easy. Calling God to rip sin out of our lives is not easy. Trying to walk away from Satan's temptations is not easy. Trying to not live under the evil structures that now govern our society but live under the reign of Christ is not easy. But there's a promise for us and that's resurrection. Because it does not end with the marred body of Jesus, does it? Because Jesus rises from the grave. And there's a promise for us that if we hold fast to following in the way of Jesus, sacrifice is never our aim, church. Love. We pursue Jesus in love. We pursue our neighbor in love. But with that, we are guaranteed. It's a guarantee. It's not a question that you're going to suffer. When you love, when you love hard, when you really love, we're going to suffer. And there's a promise here that we're going to as well. So let's just remember that as we get to our text. Now Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. Um, If you have your phone, Bible, please turn there with me or open it up if you haven't already. I'm going to read it again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So as I said before, the plan from the beginning of history has been for us to walk as imitators of God. Now, what does an imitator look like in our passage? If we are to imitate God to the world as his image bearers, as a church that are now rooted in Christ, it's these things. It is contentment, it is sexual purity, and it is thankfulness. We are a people that live in contentment with God and what God has given us. We are a people that live in sexual purity and a people that are always thankful. We are marked by these things because God is holy. The focus of our passage is on holy living because God says, be holy as I am holy. So let's get into just a few of the things in our, in our passage. The first one is going to be sexual morality, And it's a general term that Paul used to describe sexual sin. Um, so it kind of encompasses adultery, homosexuality, fornic- fornication, all these different things. Paul's trying to use this when he talks about sexual morality. And in the first century, sexual morality was a major issue with Jews and Gentiles. So we learn that exalting sex to an inappropriate level is nothing new. This has been done from the first century till now. And until Jesus comes back, I'd love to say it's not going to be an issue for the church. But it was an issue then, why Paul is speaking to it. And it's an issue for us today. And in Western culture, I mean, it's insane. Let me talk for a second just about Western culture. Sex in Western culture is not just a piece of a relationship, I believe this is what we're sold, but it's actually the central thread that makes us human. To be human is to have a sexual relationship with whom you choose, and if you choose someone, let's say in a marriage, that as soon as that marriage stops to fulfill your whole desires, but your sexual desires, then you are within your rights and free to move on as you see fit, and this is what we're sold by our culture. We are nurtured to covet what does not belong to us and to want what we don't have. I want you to take a second and think of uh the last TV show you watched. Think of the last movie you watched. Think of the last commercial you saw. Was it nurturing you to be content with what you have? When you watched the commercial was it like you don't need this car? You're good the way you are, man. Be satisfied with you, you just need to be content. No, (laughs) we know that's why it's laughable because everything in our culture is telling us we need more. Don't be satisfied. Don't be content, especially with your sex life. Don't be content. You need more. It is nurtured in us. We treat sex in our culture almost as a human right. To tell someone they should not have sex with anyone whom they choose, whenever they choose, is almost seen as like a crime against their human rights. And this is the sort of vision of sex in Western culture that is 100% focused on self-gratification. And it's evil. It's filled with lust and it's filled with discontentment and Jesus is nowhere near it. And I'm not talking about being a prude here as if sex isn't a beautiful gift. It absolutely is. Sex is a beautiful. Gift. That's not what I'm talking about, but what we're talking about is purity. We're not talking about being a prude, we're talking about being pure. And God calls us to be a holy and a pure people. So here's a few things that I thought of when I thought of okay, if we're talking about sexual morality, and this is impure, so what actually is pure sex? And here's a few things sex within the context of a marriage. And the reason I put lifelong is because there's still something in our culture that says that. Adultery is not great, which is where you get, like, Ashley Madison and these secret websites. But there's nothing in our culture that says you can't go through five or six wives. You know, as soon as you're discontent, on to the next. Discontent, on to the next, right? So that's why I put lifelong in there. In the context of a marriage, heterosexual, and these are the two most important ones. And I'm just drawing out things that I think are prominent in our culture. The first is that it's always centered on God— and always focused on the other. And nothing <laughs> I mean I just can't start nothing in our culture is moving you in that direction. You're not gonna see one commercial or one show that's gonna try to move you towards this contentment where sex is actually a gift. And you need to actually love the person on the other side of the equation. It's not just about you. Because we live in a system of Western culture that points everything towards individual autonomy and self-gratification. That's what you're sold every single day. Is that you need to gratify you in any way that you can. And sex is no different. And that's what we're sold. And sadly, I don't know if we've always given a more promising vision in the church. Now, I hate to uh, critique the church, um, but I do believe it's helpful some ways, so I'm going to. Um, but I think it's important for us to look at a few things, and I really want to speak to men here for just a moment. Um, because when I think of sexual immorality, maybe this is just me being a man, um, being a husband, being a father, um, there's, a, there's a weight there's a weight that I feel in this, especially for men. And I just did a quick Google search. 75% of, of men are the ones that actually struggle with pornography when you think of women and men. So this conversation of sexual morality, I think, is so important for men to hear, really hard for men to hear. So first, I want to talk to married men. And I'll just say this. Be thankful and content for the wife that God's given you. And contentment almost makes it sound like, you, oh, I need to be content. You need to be grateful that a woman actually decided to spend the rest of her life with you. There's a woman out there that said, you. that's what, You need to be grateful for it. <laughs> you need to be content with it. And the problem with sexual morality in the context of a marriage is it pollutes the entire marriage. You think you can compartmentalize, and I'm looking at men that I know are watching pornography. You think you can compartmentalize it, and you can't. It pollutes the whole marriage. It pollutes your whole life. You can't. You can't compartmentalize it. This contentment and desire, oh gosh, is so nurtured by our culture and it's so hard to overcome. But as men who love Jesus are committed to a wife, we strive every day to look at our wives, be content, and to be grateful. And keep your pants on. Unless your wife's in the room, keep your pants on. That's just like a simple, that's how, I think that's helpful. Simple, it's easy to remember, keep your pants on. All right. Second, I want to take a second and talk to singles, okay? Married men, now singles, because usually in the context of marriage and family and singleness, they're kind of left out of the conversation. So singles. Um, I'm going to address two things here. And once again, I'm just trying to, you're always trying to read the Bible and connect it with culture. You know, Paul is writing in his context um, 2,000 years ago-ish, you know, and I'm trying to, okay, what does this mean for our context today? So singles as a whole, but then a subset of that is uh, homosexuality. So I'm going to speak a little bit to the gay community and the conversation that we have right now that I think is important. Um, I can remember a conversation so vividly. I've had this conversation a few times with a guy who was really trying to follow Jesus. He was raised in the church, um, in a homosexual relationship, never actually been attracted to women his entire life, you know. And he prayed, I mean prayed, 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 prayed that God would take the desire away. If God would only take it away, if God would only take it away. So I'm sitting across from him, you know. And he's a man now, and he's looking at me saying, okay, um, I'm trying to follow Jesus. I know I shouldn't be in a homosexual relationship. So what you're calling me to is singleness and celibacy, to which I would respond and say, yes, That's, that's, that's the call. And that's part of this fragrant offering, this sacrifice, following Jesus is not easy. And it takes different sacrifice in different forms for different people. But then he looked at me, and this is what hit me. He looked at me and said, so can I not have a family? And I said, well, the church, the church is your family. And he said, yeah, and put his head down. And he didn't say anything after that. I knew exactly what he meant. He said, all the churches I've been to, I'm filling in the gaps, but I've actually had people in the homosexual community tell me this. All the churches I've been to exalt marriage, family, nuclear marriage, nuclear family, and sex within that to such a level, like I don't know how I fit in this equation. Can I be a part of this family? If Jesus is really the groom, we are the bride, and we are brothers and sisters in this family. Can I be a part of it? Am I grafted into it? So it's not just a conversation about um, homosexuality, because not everybody that chooses to be single is saying that they're gay. I don't think that was the case with the Apostle Paul and with Jesus, and they certainly seem to be content and fine with their singleness and lack of sexual relationship. So I think it's something for us as the church to be challenged by that we are a people that are welcoming of all, and we graft them in. They become family. We're brothers and sisters, and this is supposed to supersede our nuclear family. Once again, so that the culture can look in, and they see a glimpse of this beauty and this oneness across singles and across all these other different communities that come together under Christ. Paul continues on and says, I don't want you to be named by these things. And what he's trying to get at is a label that outsiders are going to give you. I don't want you to be labeled as sexually immoral or sexually impure and have filthy talk. God's people must be set apart and holy and marked by purity. Why? Because God is holy and we need to display his holiness and his beauty to the world. People need to actually taste and see that the Lord is good when they look into this place. It's like, you know, I love a coffee shop down the road called AT Oasis. And it's like if I go to your home and you have a bag of coffee from AT Oasis, um, I feel like it's just appropriate from Cody's last sermon on coffee. Let's just continue the, the thread. So, you know, I go into your home, you have a bag of coffee from AT Oasis, and you hand me a mug that says AT Oasis on the mug, and I take a drink, and what I get is Folgers. I've just been defiled. So if you're in here and you drink Folgers or Maxwell House, you can repent. God will forgive you. He will take that can of Folgers, cover it with his blood, and you can be welcomed in to God's family. But you, you got to come. It's like kind of that, you know, all whosoever will come forward and receive that gift of grace. But we need to be a people who are marked by holiness and purity so that people look in and they see Jesus and they see his purity reflecting in us. And that wells over, this contentment and this purity centered in Jesus wells over into thanksgiving. Contentment with God and what God has given is shown through a life of genuine thankfulness. When you're content with Jesus and you're content with what God has given you, why are you going to have foolish talk? Why are you going to be gossiping? Why are you going to be bickering? You're going to be grateful because you're so grateful for what God has done in your life and so grateful for Jesus. However, we remember again that uh, nothing in culture is driving us towards contentment. Everything we hear is pushing us away and pushing us towards dissatisfaction. So, in light of these cultural pressures and our call as God's people, how do we imitate Jesus? How are we content with him and what he's given us? And how do we actually express this contentment to the world and to our neighbors, one another, in thanksgiving? Well, it's impossible 100% impossible without Jesus. And this is what leads us to the gospel. So walking through our text now, we come to the gospel. So a few things. Jesus was content with the life that God had given him. Jesus was born into a poor working class family. He was a blue collar worker. He spent most of his days with his father as a carpenter or a stonemason. And for the most part, there's no reason to believe that Jesus lived anything other than a simple and quiet life for 30 years of his life, before God called him into vocational ministry. I hate to say that God just called him into ministry because Paul, the Apostle Paul, looks at the 30 years of Jesus' life and says he was sinless, which means it was perfect. This quiet, simple life of contentment that's modeled by Jesus is perfect. It's perfect. Second, Jesus was content with his heavenly Father. You see nothing in Jesus that longed to have someone else. He is not greedy for another relationship with someone else. He's single, he's celibate, and he's content. His relationship with his heavenly father is sufficient, and he never in his entire life was sexually immoral, always pure. And his life was marked by thankfulness and always displaying the image of God to the world through gratitude. As we've already talked about, imitating God to the world leads to suffering, And it cost Jesus' life. He took the punishment of our discontentment. He took the punishment of your sexual immorality. He took your lack of gratitude when all he was was grateful, content, and pure. And he took it upon himself and was crucified with it. And with his resurrection, he extends this gift to us called grace that we couldn't earn. Because we read our passage and automatically it becomes a standard we couldn't live up to. And only one person ever did. And it's Jesus, which is what drives us to him. It's what drives us to him. And by faith in what Jesus has accomplished, we now become his bride. We become the bride of Christ. And the center point of the gospel is we are first and foremost married to Christ. He's the groom and we are the bride. And if that is not where we root ourselves... It's going to be really hard to live a life of contentment, gratitude, and sexual purity. There's a church in New York that I really appreciate called New Life Fellowship. And here's something they say about it that I think is really, really good. He says, first and foremost, we are married to Christ. And this means that we are ordering our marriages, singleness, and sexuality out of a deep theology of our marriage to Christ, covenanted, committed, and content with Jesus as individuals and as a people. We place a high value on healthy marriages. This is continuing from New Life Fellowship. We place a high value on healthy marriages, families, and singles. Throughout Scripture, we see marriage is central to understanding our relationship with God. This value informs how we prioritize a theology of body, marriage, singleness, and sexuality. If you don't see yourself as a son or daughter of God in covenant with Jesus Christ, then it's going to be impossible to fulfill our mission, which is why if you have never given yourself over to Jesus and you're here and you want to be sexually pure, you keep fighting and you don't have Jesus. You want to be content with what God has given you, but you can't. You just crave more all the time. You're constantly bickering. Jesus offers forgiveness. He extends his grace and says, come, come and submit yourself to Jesus. So if you've never done that, you can do it today and receive the purity of jesus because you can't live up to the standard but for many of us most of us we come back again just to re and say okay that's right jesus and we remember him and we come forward and we submit our lives to him and this moves us to our mission as god's people if you are the church the bride of christ and you would say yes i belong to jesus We are now set free to live with contentment and thankfulness, but reflecting God's image to the world is our mission. The world needs to see Jesus, and they need to see it in you. They need to see it in your home. They need to see it in your family. They need to see it in this church. People see this life that we are called to live in us. So what is our calling? Let's just recap it. I've said it so many times, but I'm going to say it one more time we are a people called to reflect the image of jesus to the world and we do this out of understanding our marriage first and foremost to christ that we are connected to him we are content with jesus we don't need anything else other than jesus we are content with what he's given us and from that that always leads us to gratitude we are a people people that are grateful But once again, I know this mission, this call, it's not easy. So what do we hope for? And that's how I want to end, with our hope. So we started at the beginning, talking through how we're supposed to, from the very beginning at Genesis 1 and 2, reflect God's image to the world. This is built into our DNA, but We walk away from that. We walk towards ourselves. And then Jesus comes and he is actually faithful to reflect the image of his father. He's faithful to be content. He was actually grateful. He was actually pure. So we find our place in him. However, we know that this life of love and generosity towards others, it leads to sacrifice. But God has a promise for us that one day we will no longer struggle with sexual purity. If you're here and you're a married man, And you're struggling and you're struggling, you have a promise. If you're here and you're a married woman and your husband is struggling and he's struggling, you have a promise. If you're here and you can't be content, you're always hungering for more, you have a promise. If you're here and you can never actually just be grateful, you're always upset, you're always bitter, you're always angry, and you're verbalizing it to others, you have a promise. If you belong to Jesus, Jesus is coming back. One day, Jesus is going to come back, and it's a day I long for. We will see, as his bride, we will see the groom face to face. Let's pray, and let's long for that day together. Pray with me. Father, we long to see Jesus. God, love is hard. Loving you and loving our neighbor is hard. It is not easy, God, and we desperately need Jesus, so we come in this moment, and we give ourselves to him, and say, Jesus, please fill us up. We need more of you to be faithful to the call you have given us. Amen. So now we come to a time of response.